and a lot of people think about quite think a lot about that in that fossil fuel economies create rents where the fossil fuels are and where there's rents there's always fights over power and eventually some sort of some sort of controlling factor kicks in as to who controls what rents we have these this is why there was so much trouble with the climate change conversation in Canada is because it's effectively our oil and what's the, what's the future of our oil and gas sector and we need a, we need a national conversation about that right and it's not that large a part of our GDP, but it dominates so much of our political discourse. It's even it, it's much more dramatic in, North, in, in Latin America. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Chris Bataille, an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University about deep decarbonization pathways for Latin America. Now, this is the fourth deep decarbonization pathway interview we've done on uh, energy talks so we'll uh, see how many uh, we'll see where there are comparisons and where latin america is different than canada and the us so welcome to the interview chris oh, it's good to be here mark look you wrote a paper that i read about deep decarbonization pathways for latin america why don't we start with that and uh, we'll just get you to give us an overview of your paper please Sure. This um, I work for a group in Paris called IDRI. Um, they work on sustainable development globally on agriculture, um, energy emissions, what have you. There's whole sections. Uh, about five years ago, they, along with a group at Columbia University, led a global deep decarbonization project. Um, Canada was one of them. That's how I got involved. I was one of the lead authors for that. But I, then I went to work for them looking at low carbon development pathways for developing countries, because it's obviously different in that context. You've got less capital to work with, less governance capacity, less finance, but you're also you've got less entrenched interests. You've got less built-in, you know, high emitting capital. You're starting from more of a blank slate in some cases. Um, so what happened after that project is the Inter-American Development Bank approached IDRI about uh, doing low carbon development pathways for a bunch of their client countries. And this is in the post-Paris agreement phase where part of the Paris, one of the clauses in the Paris agreement asks for long-term strategies. So a country along with its nationally determined contribution, which is how the Paris Agreement is built up. So what are they going to do? What are they going to contribute to the global effort? They, they contribute, part of it is just this plan. And when it was put, when that, when that item was put into the, into the Paris Agreement, no one really know, knew what it meant. It was just a good idea. So part of this was, they were in, a Latin, in this context, what does this mean for these countries? So Part and you know and they they told us frankly there just wasn't a lot of capacity in the countries to start with there were some energy modeling teams starting from various levels of capability so working with the Inter American Development Bank we picked six Latin American countries so just we got Mexico Costa Rica uh, Colombia Ecuador Peru and Argentina um, and then we found the mentee teams so um, each of them had a more a more advanced team so the Brazilians helped the Ecuadorians, a U.S. team helped the Americans, another U.S. team helped the Colombians, and so on. And what we were doing is court helping the trainer teams bring the trainee teams up to speed to the point where they could develop their own low-carbon development pathway with their models. 
and be able to communicate it to stakeholders so that they could take it into their local, their finance departments, their environment departments and communicate it and get talking with their electricity utilities, fossil fuel companies, what have you. So this whole exercise was partly about getting uh, what we call DDPs, deep decarbonization pathways, but it was much more about developing a community of practice and developing capacity in these countries such that they had modeling teams that they could enter into the negotiations more fully equipped. I want to ask you about the modeling because the other interviews that I've done have all been with, uh, you know, with uh, academics like yourself who have led modeling teams. And, uh, you know, they've alluded to the, the models during the conversations. And I find it very interesting, but I, I confess I don't understand it that well. Mm-hmm. Could you give us a, maybe just a bit of an overview about what, you know, a model uh, for deep decarbonization pathways looks like? It's, it can vary from very simple to very complex. Um, and it can be as simple as a spreadsheet. You've got your electricity sector, your, you've got your energy supply sectors that supply so much energy to the energy using sectors. So personal freight transport, buildings, industry, what have you, and all sorts of levels of complexity of assumptions link those. And you, you always start with a base year of data. So, you know, how much, how much output is happening, how many kilometers traveled, you know, roughly what the G, the energy intensity is, what the, what the, uh, greenhouse gas intensity of that energy is. And then somehow by many different methods, the models evolve that through time. And it can be very sophisticated where you actually put full policy packages into these models, or you just tweak dials in a spreadsheet in order to arrive there and then use the dial tweaking to inform policy. Well, that sounds very interesting. So the one that you used, was it more on the complex side or on the less complex side? This is the interesting thing. We, what we provide is a template for them to fill in so that we're looking at common measures across all these countries. They all have completely different models. Some of them just had spreadsheets. Some of them had very, very sophisticated integrated assessment models. And it all depended kind of what the trainer team was bringing to the table, what capability they have. But the, tr- the trick is models are just collections of assumptions and collections of data depend and a lot of it can be better or worse right so by bringing it together in this common template we could cross compare and they could cross compare their results and go "Mm, maybe i should have done that a little bit differently or that differently and it's it's a bit it's the idea is to generate a learning feedback loop amongst the teams so what were some of the observations about latin america in terms of where the greenhouse gas emissions were concentrated. And I Mm -hmm. gather from what I read in your paper that electricity, transport uh, were two of the big ones. And and generally that was true in the other interviews I did as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and the other two that showed up most often would be buildings and and industry. But the third one uh, in Latin America is agriculture, forestry, and other land use. And that was a bit, uh, I haven't seen that before uh, mm-hmm. in the other, in the other uh, papers and, and interviews I've done. So why was uh, agriculture and forestry, why did it stand out uh, so starkly in Latin America? Part of it's just the way we do greenhouse gas emissions accounting, right? So much of what we call 
agriculture, forestry, and land use gets counted, and it's only that which is adjusted by humans against the, the, the rest of the energy system. So in Canada, our energy system is this big, and our follow is kind of what we call follow, or Lulu CF is about that big. In Latin America, because of the size of the energy economy versus their land base, the land base, the land base is about two-thirds of the emissions, the, the managed land base. Um, and when we say land base, to make it real, we're talking about the Amazon here. We're talking about uh, agricultural agriculture and ranching lands, what have you. And a lot of the, a lot of the of a lot of these countries' economy is based on beef. Some of them it's based on beef ranching of all things. It can be the largest export sometimes. And you need a you tend to need a lot of ground and you end up basically chewing up a lot of forest in, in order to have enough ranch land to grow beef. So Let's start then maybe with uh, ways to decarbonize agriculture. And I'm curious what, uh, what you came up with on that pathway. The number one thing, believe it or not, and this, this is eating just, you know, people eating less beef. Right. So it's not eating no beef, not asking people to go vegetarian or vegan or what have you, but it's bringing down the proportion of beef in their diets, because, the, first of all, with a cow, methane comes out of the back, the front and the back end of a cow. And it's quite a it's quite a powerful greenhouse gas. Um, also, the their their excrement emits methane and what's called N2O. So it's a, it's another greenhouse gas. So roughly speaking, between the deforestation caused by these ranch lands plus the methane plus the and the deforestation produces CO2, the, and the, the cows produce C, uh, methane and N2O. You're looking about roughly, I don't know, it's it's 20, 25% of the world's emissions there, not just Latin America, but globally. Okay, so uh, how then does one persuade 650 million people mm -hmm. roughly to eat less meat? And I would assume that in developing countries, they may eat much less meat already than North Americans do. Yeah, and it's not just them. It's not just asking them to eat less meat. It's their markets, right? So for Argentina, it's a single. I think it's the single largest export, and this gets into the macroeconomics of of all of this. Every country needs some sort of export, but in order to acquire foreign exchange, in order to kind of engage in trade, otherwise they end they end up not just not being able to get capital investment and get businesses going right. So for a lot of these countries, they're very very agriculture intense in terms of how they how they acquire foreign exchange. So the trick, the part of the trick here is them them you know them eating they're they're Diets are quite at the at again. It, it's a very there. Oh, some of them are very unequal societies. In the top end of their societies, they're eating a lot of meat, like us, right? At the bottom end, they're eating very little meat, right? So it's it's getting your wealthy elements of society eat less meat helps. It reduces the deforestation pressures. Now that's that's part of it. Also, it's they have very. Part of the way land tenure works in Latin America is they, they you know the government owns the land, but Share crop, effectively sharecroppers will go in and start, you know, start taking possession of land or cutting trees in order with very few head per, per, per hectare, right? And then after about 10 years, it's effectively their land and they sell it to a larger company. Whereas if you can get a more industrial way of growing cattle or other agriculture where it's more intensive on, le on less hectares, you end up not having those deforestation pressures as much. And the Brazilians actually were quite successful 
with enforcing this for about 10 years, their deforestation and their follow emissions or their, their, their deforestation CO2 really dropped off before the Bolsonaro government came in. And then when he came in, they stopped enforcing these measures and the deforestation went way, way up again. So a lot of this is just it's simple enforcement of the rules that they have and which structure helps structure the agricultural industry there. Well, let's talk about the electricity sector. Um, is this a, a region that burns a lot of coal to make power? It's a mix. They, some of them have a lot of coal, some of them have hydro, uh, some of them have natural gas. It, it's all over the place. Uh, it depends on what's cheap there. Uh, there's been a lot of hydro and there's been some fairly dubious hydro investments put in there on bad geology and what have you. Um, the, on the plus side, all these regions have excellent renewable resources. Um, they've got excellent wind and solar, wind and solar potential, and the cost of both of those has come way, way, way down. And they can use their existing hydro to help balance against the variability of the, of the wind and solar. So they have all the potential they need to clean up their electricity systems. What do what are they missing in that potential uh, from realizing it? I guess I mean, is it capital? Is it expertise? Is it technology? What is it? Um, much of the potential exists already. It's interesting when I went into this project, I kind of assumed that a lot of what we call nor northern money would have to come in to actualize these investments. But there's actually quite a bit of capital flowing around in Latin, Latin America already. And a lot of it is directing it and, and make, making it purposeful and, and resetting up sort of the the, the rules of the trade if, if you have, if have you. So like if the government takes a, firm, takes a firm grip of the electricity system, decides that all new investment's going to be clean and that the necessary balancing resources will go in there to balance against wind and solar, they, they effectively have the capital they need. Now, that's not to say they have everything they need. Now, if the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank can come in there saying we will help or we will provide signaling capital, that really helps with the with them attracting private market capital at a reasonable rate. One of the things I've learned over the last couple of years of doing this kind of work is that something can cost a dollar, like you can borrow a dollar for say two to three, say um, borrowing a dollar costs you four, four to 5% here for a risky investment in North America. That same dollar can cost you seven, eight, seven to 10% in Latin America because of the, because of the risk, the risk premium put onto it, right? So the way this finance gets structured, if you can get intermediaries like the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, that, you know, structure, purpose, long-term green investors coming in there, they can access the low interest rates that we have access to up here. Is there any interest amongst international investors in, you know, the wind-solar uh, battery combination uh, for Latin America? I guess what I'm getting at, Chris, is the I, I assume that their uh, electrical systems are not as well-developed as North American as North America. And this might be an opportunity for Latin America to bypass the centralized kind of electric system mm -hmm. that we've developed and do what say the Africans did with telecommunications where you just go, you skip landlines and you go straight to cell phones. Is there that kind of opportunity uh, in Latin America? I, I do believe it's there. I, I 
distributed wind, solar, and batteries are always going to be more costly than centralized, right? But it does allow private art market actors to participate more directly in their power supply. And I, in, a, in a South African um, project that I'm working on, we're trying to set up, we're trying to help uh, reestablish a mothballed steel plant as a green iron plant. Um, but the, the electrical system in South Africa is a disaster, right? There's rolling blackouts and brownouts and what have you. So in order for this plant to go ahead, they need a dedicated PV field. If they can get a dedicated PV field at the kind of interest rates we pay for it, this thing is a go. We're talking green, green steel, green iron shipped to Europe, what have you. The same thing happens to a certain, to a lesser extent in Latin America, where part of this is utility reform. Part of this is getting the transmission system upgraded so you can you can share resources between different regions. You can share store storage, what have you. Um, and it's also about building the demand side of the equation. So this is where transport comes in: is getting electrification going. Uh, of the transport sector, getting electrification of household cooking and what have you going, because that helps bring, build demand, bring in renewable capacity, bring in investment in the transition system and set up a positive cycle where they can move towards more of an electrically based system than that we, that we started with it with in Europe and North America. And, and I would assume, assume that electrifying uh, transportation, uh, one of the limiting factors in the adoption of uh, EVs has got to be uh, the availability of electricity, the dependable availability of yes. electricity. So I guess if you want to if you want to fix the one problem, you have to fix the other one first. Yes, and frankly, it, what's interesting, I I I'm less pessimistic. I learned a lot about Latin America and I'm learning a lot about other developing countries in, in doing this work and the capacity is there. It's, it's the incentive structure and the willingness of the government and, and, li and lining that up. And they have the engineering talent they, they need. If what they need is kind of access to cheap capital. They may, may need some help with from util experienced utilities in the North, what have you, but this can be done, but it all has to be core. One of the countries most advanced in this, this respect is Costa Rica. Right from the government on down through the line ministries to the utilities, they have a national plan in place to electrify the transport system, get the capacity in there, electrify the build the building stock and cooking and what have you. So, but Costa Rica is a bit of a, an outlier in the cohesiveness of its governance system. Well, speaking of governance, one of the things that uh, surprised me as I've been doing interviews about, you know, the clean energy and clean technology is how important uh, the regulatory uh, framework is for these sorts of things. And so if I'm thinking about Latin America, my impression is not very good, uh, you know, stable rule, uh, rule of law based government. Uh, so how much of a problem is that down there? Uh, it's very regional, it's very spotty, but it's not as bad as you might imagine. And the thing is, you can start in regional pockets. You don't have to, you know, yes, you know, there are just, there are places that you, you may be not willing, not capable to do this, but other regions where you can quite easily. Part of it is... It's it's lining lining up lining up the institutions from the very top level down and making sure they're all committed and one isn't pushing pushing against the other. So, for example, 
Colombia has come much since the end of the the FERC the the FARC uh, civil insurrection. There, they've come a really long way. Like they have, they have their own cap and trade system and carbon carbon price. And the country is is rebuilding wealth very very quickly in its governance institutions. Well, that's, that's interesting. So, let's. I guess that's another uh, question: uh, is the disparity between different countries? If you've got you know, 20 countries, 14 dependent territories. Uh, who's at who's at the top, maybe the top three or four, and who's at the bottom in, in terms of potential to decarbonize their economies by 2050? Well, that's that's a really interesting question. The Chileans and the, the, the Chileans and Brazilians have strong governments. The Brazilians, when when depends on which way the presidency's gone, but Chile has come a really long way. Like you can say, it, it's basically low European standards of of living right now. Um, Argentina has been there, but it has big fiscal issues where its currency collapses, debt issues happen. So it's it's kind of stabilizing some of that stuff, but. Part of all part of all this is most of these countries have fiscal imbalance issues, a lot of it associated with importing fossil fuels or refined fossil fuels and, ex, and to a certain extent exporting unrefined fossil fuels. And as, as the US dollar goes up and down and their own currency, currency goes up and down, government balances can get really out of whack really quickly and it leads to instability. And some of them have really, really high fossil fuel subsidies. So Ecuador has a really high fossil fuel subsidy on uh, liquid petroleum gas for, for cooking in homes. They tried to pull that off and it literally caused riots that almost brought down the government right so they have to pay for that subsidy hem somehow so they export oil so then countries so if chile is in the very best place ecuador is maybe in the least best place because they, they're stuck with a declining crude oil resource that they're exporting and fossil fuel subsidies to their domestic population that they can't get rid of right so they've got a real push and pull happening. Colombia is coming up very quickly. Um, Mexico is a, is a super interesting country because it has all this established oil and gas um, capacity, but it's declining and it's partly declining because they're not reinvesting in it. And they have all the potential that say Texas or Oklahoma has to engage in sort of more fossil fuel orientated decarbonization with intensive CCS and making hydrogen from, um, from methane and what have you. They have the engineering capacity, they have the institutional structures, but they're not, the government just keeps sucking money, sucking money out of Pemex and not allowing it to reinvest in its own future. And there's not, there isn't that top-down direction that the, that the entire system needs to go to net zero in Mexico. So Mexico has all the, it has tremendous solar resources. It has all the capacity uh, in the fossil fuel sector to use all that chemical uh, making and see a geological understanding and what have you for its decarbonization. But the governance is just not there. Whereas Chile, they're on and, and Costa Rica, they're on, they're heading exactly in the right direction. I had the opportunity uh, three or four months ago to interview Tony Siba, uh, the Stanford lecturer and, and uh, I don't know, we'll call him futurist for lack of a better term. So he had written a paper about uh, the electric revolution of the 2030. And mm -hmm. his, his thesis is that wind, solar and batteries are going to be so cheap by 2030 uh, the marginal cost will be almost zero. And when you have cheap energy like that, that basically revolutionizes societies. And 
I thought, you know, it's one thing I can imagine how that might work in a country like Canada or the United States where, okay, so I got cheap electricity. Now I can do all sorts of, uh, I can have all sorts of industries that I couldn't have before. Mm -hmm. Hydrogen making, for instance, using electrolysis. But I, I look down to uh, Latin America and I think, you know, is there an opportunity when things become that cheap that you democratize electricity? Many more people have electricity than otherwise. And you, you, is it the potential to build an economic base that wasn't there under a fossil fuel, uh, fossil fueled economy? That's a really interesting question. And a lot of people think about quite, think a lot about that in that fossil fuel economies create rents where the fossil fuels are and where there's rents, there's always fights over power. And eventually some sort of some sort of controlling factor kicks in as to who controls what rents. We have these, th this is why there was so much trouble with the climate change conversation in Canada is because it's effectively our oil and gas, what's, what's the future of our oil and gas sector? And we need, a, we need a national conversation about that, right? And it's not that large a part of our GDP, but it dominates so much of our political discourse. It's even, it, it's much more dramatic in, North, in, in Latin America. I, I think I think your your Siba, Tony Siba is probably right as the global energy system heads towards wind and solar as our key primary energy primary primary energy source um, and it's ubiquitous everywhere that will calm a lot of things down then you stop fighting about who controls the Strait of Hormuz and 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 the and the gap in Malaysia in Malaysia and what have you um, but it's not it's not the be all and end all. The problem is wind, solar and batteries takes you a certain way, but that's the best batteries are gonna ever do is overnight uh, and maybe a week. Um, you know, wind and solar, the energy shows up when it shows up, it could be incredibly cheap, but we do need to meet load through time and you need some sort of balancing resource. It can be hydro, it can be, um, it can be nuclear, it could be geothermal, it could be hydro, you know, hydrogen storage, what have you. And that requires organization, that requires in developing and planning for that firm, clean power requires market structures, requires institutions, requires governments, right? So there is a democratizing effect on the supply, but for the overall stability of the system, you need proper governance. Based on the work that you've done in Latin America, are you optimistic that the uh, various countries will be able to meet their emissions targets in 2050 and resolve some of the issues we've just talked about? Yes. Yes, I, I think it's, I think it's very, it's not guaranteed, but I think it's very strongly possible. Um, part of this, all of this is having a shared societal vision and, and getting all your stakeholders together, be it your, your existing fossil fuel companies, utilities, your, you know, your, your high capital, big business farmers, your, your subsistence farmers, getting them all on the same page and willing to trust and work with the government and the various levels of government to execute a plan. Um, if you if you can get that, these countries can do this. And Brazil has shown, Chile has definitely shown this is possible. Brazil in its good years has shown this is possible. Colombia has shown it's possible. Mexico's done it. Costa Rica is doing it right now. And but it's it's up to it's up to the countries and it's it's up to the countries themselves. But 
outside support can come in the form of development bank levering capital, uh, technical assistance where necessary. Uh, you know, it's it's part of this is creating a supporting environment. Like, you know, if if the price of oil, it, realistic projections of the price of oil and coal for everyone will help them decide. Oh, it's not worth going into these extra reserves here and betting my foreign my my macroeconomic policy for the next twenty years. I'll just leave those there and I'll do this other thing here. I'll use my solar resource and I'll use it to make hydrogen, which I'll make ammonia from or what have you, and make other commodities. You know, I'll make so much solar that I've got it'll meet my needs, but in the down, in most years, I'll be shipping extra as hydrogen or ammonia or something. And the Chileans are actively planning that right now. Well, Chris, thank you very much. This has been a, a fascinating look at a region that often doesn't get as much attention, uh, at least in my world, uh, as it deserves. And uh, I really appreciate your insights. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the time.